Advent Conspiracy, we've been doing it for, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years now. We have been able to give away over $300,000 on projects, water wells, all kinds of things. We'll review that in the coming weeks. Um, and so, in case you're new or you, you forgot <laughs> what Advent Conspiracy is, that's what it is, that we might worship fully, that we might spend a little less on ourselves, that we might give more of our time in outreach and ministry, and that this money we saved in buying each other stuff that we don't need, we invested in the kingdom. If a fraction of that $1 trillion that's spent every year on Christmas could be used to, to help the world, what a difference we would make. And so this year we have two projects that we're working on. One, if you were in 40 Days of Religion, is a relief project. Um, the government, the we'll explain it all next week. Uh, the church in Lebanon is quite struggling these days. And so there are supply chain issues, there are government issues, and the believers there are really hurting. And so we want to provide some relief for them. And then we also want to do something more on the development side, something a little more long-term investment. Um, the, the Life Medical Center in Bombo that we built, which is the daily clinic, is struggling just to keep itself going. And so when we were there in August, we all kind of sat and talked about how we make this a viable thing. And one of the ways that we talked about with them was that they wanted to come and make, uh, find their niche in the community. Is it going to be, you know, birthing? Is it going to be whatever? And so they have decided really for them, it is important that they become a diagnostic center because people can, can get the, the help that they need, but they need somebody to tell them what's wrong with them. And so we're going to increase the, the testing ability that they have to do uh, on site. And they think that can help them to become sustainable long term. So relief work in Lebanon and some development in Uganda. And that's, that's where we're headed this year. And we'll explain more about that uh, in the weeks to come. But that's our Advent Conspiracy Project for 2022. All right, well, good morning. I am so glad that Carolyn Tuttle's not here, so I don't have to say congratulations to the Utes. But all you Bruins, all right, come on, here we go. We are humbled. So, um, and the Buckeye fans are thrilled, and everybody else is thrilled but the Trojans, so there you go. It's okay. You, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what a sad world you live in. So it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here, is it not? You, isn't it lovely? They worked really hard this week, and it looks nice. A huge tank, thanks to the team for putting this all together. They've done a great job. Our theme this year is the lights before Christmas. Because I knew all these lights were going up, and I was like, well, then why don't we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the lights, but not just the light at Christmas. I want to talk about the lights before Christmas. Because we love to, to talk about light and sing about it and, and think about it. So we're not going to be exploring the light that burst onto the scene, you know, with the angels and the, and the, the, the star and, and all of that as we tell that story that we've told so many times. This morning, we're going to begin, we, last Sunday morning, we began a series where we looked at, at the lights that, that shine in the scripture before that story. They provide a setting for, for what this story that we tell every year is all about. They add texture to this season. They're, they're faint, they're, they're almost hidden lights. Um, these are the small twinkling stars that kind of fall into the background of the brightness of the glory of God that we see 
uh, at the manger. And so we're going to look at stories which might not fit into the Christian Christmas narrative, at least at first glance, but they very much do, actually. They point in this series to a depth and a richness to the story of redemption. So by coincidence, most of our time is going to be spent this month, not today, but the rest of the month, in the book of Exodus. And you think, Exodus, really? But, but think about it. There are two great stories of redemption in the Scripture. The first is the story in Exodus of the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. The second great story of redemption is in the Gospels, which is the story of the, the coming of Christ and the redemption that we enjoy from, from sin and from the slave market of sin. And so those two stories are, are often connected. One is really a foreshadowing of the greater story of redemption, which is to come. So Andrew was brave enough last week to tackle the, the manna story in Exodus 16 and how that hints about the role the Savior would take in our lives as the bread of life to renew daily with him and the, and the faith that it takes to walk with him. This morning, we're going to step further back into history, about 400 years or so before that Exodus 16 account. And we're going to look at Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob is dying. In fact, in the account we're going to look at, he's on his deathbed. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there are very few deathbed stories in the Bible. We know usually, well, so-and-so lived and so-and-so died and he, had, he begat whatever. We don't know when or where or how a death took place in most cases. The New Testament has even less information about the, the dying of people. You don't know when or where Paul the Apostle actually died. Whose deaths do you know about? Well, you know about Stephen, you know about Jesus, of course, Judas, a couple of others, but that's about it. So what's fascinating is this. There's a ton of information about Jacob's death. Hmm. Abraham's death is described in seven verses. Isaac's death is talked about in three verses. After Jacob, his son Joseph, his death is described in five verses. Jacob's death, about 73 verses. Whoa, that's significant. The story begins at the end of chapter 47. It covers all of chapters 48 and 49 of Genesis and the first half of, of chapter 50, and then he finally dies. It's recorded in four scenes in those chapters. The first scene is he meets with his son Joseph, and he makes Joseph promise that he will take his body back to Canaan for burial. And so Joseph does. Second, in chapter 48, Jacob calls his, his two grandsons, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he blesses them. He basically adopts them as his own so that they will get inheritance in the land. And then in chapter 49, he calls his sons and he blesses all 12 of his sons. And then fourth, he again asks in Genesis, the last half of verse 49 and into chapter 50, make sure you bury me in the promised land. Bury me, take me to Canaan. And then in chapter 50, he dies and the procession is discussed about how his body is taken from Egypt where he dies and he's buried in Canaan. 
Now, the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to listen to Jacob speak. He speaks to his son. And when he speaks to these sons, there's one verse, really, or one section that's most important for our series this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 49, first book of the Bible, next to the last chapter in the book. He says this in Genesis 49, verse 10. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You got to stop right there. We need, we need a little, to provide some context for that, we need to understand, you know, biblical genealogy a little bit. See, God had promised to Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to the world. You know, the promise to Abraham. That got passed down to Isaac. Isaac passed it down to Jacob. The problem, it's not a problem, but the issue becomes Jacob has 12 sons. Which one gets to carry the promise? Which one is the chosen one? By rights, it should have been who? Reuben, firstborn. But Reuben blew it. He sinned and he was passed over. The same is true of Simeon and Levi. So when Jacob comes to his fourth son, Judah, He speaks one of the most amazing prophecies. He speaks a light before Christmas, way before Christmas. And for 2,000 years, Genesis 49 from 8 to 12 has been seen as one of the greatest messianic promises or prophecies in the entire Old Testament. Because even though Jacob is dying, he is on his deathbed. With his eyes of faith, he sees through the mist to a day when Judah will take leadership in Israel. And the people of Judah would be lion-like in their courage and in their strength. And the tribe would lead the other tribes, and the other 11 will follow Judah. And then he says the scepter, the sign of regal authority, the scepter would rest with Judah. Between his legs, it's, it's, it says you're sitting on the throne, it's there, it's secure. It's his, until, until he whom, to whom it belongs shall come. Some of your translations will say, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is either a proper name for the Messiah, in which case it, it, it speaks of his peace, it speaks of his coming, or it's a Hebrew contraction meaning to him, to whom, he to whom it belongs. What's it? It's the scepter. The one who, whose possession or owns the scepter. If it's a proper name, Shiloh means the one who brings peace. It might very well mean that because in Isaiah 9 verse 6, he's what called the prince of peace. If it's a Hebrew contraction, he's prophesying that the Messiah, he truly will be the rightful ruler of Israel. Which is it? It's reality. It's probably both of those concepts. It's vague enough that, that, that really both thoughts are intended by this Shiloh expression. So what is Jacob saying to Judah as he's dying in Egypt? 
Well, let's explore the rest of what he says to Judah. Here's a a simple outline of these four or five verses. He says in verse 8 of Genesis 49, Judah will be the dominant tribe in Israel. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. He says, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Have you heard that phrase before? Genesis 3, verse 15. It's the same thing that Eve's seed would crush the head of the serpent. It's a similar promise. The Messianic seed is going to completely subdue his enemies. This is a picture of a warrior king who rules and reigns. It's the coming one, the conqueror. And the tribes of Israel will bow to a descendant of Judah. Not their own tribe, but of Judah. In verse 9, he says, Judah will be lion-like in courage and strength. He says in verse 9, you are a lion's cub. Judah, you, will, you return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The courage, the strength. Third, in verse 10, the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who, to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The scepter, this royal lineage, will fall with Judah, and he will rule the nations. And then fourth, he says, his coming is going to bring peace and joy and prosperity. Think agriculture when you're reading this. You're a farmer. What do you do with your donkey? Probably not this. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That speaks of days of prosperity. If you have so many grapes on your vine that you can go ahead and tie your donkey up to the best, vi- the best vine with the choicest grapes and let him have his way, you got a lot of grapes. It doesn't matter how many he eats. The coming of Messiah, he's going to subdue his enemies. He's going to usher in a time of great prosperity. It's been promised. You'll wash your clothes with wine. Wine's just going to flow like water. You got more wine than water in these days. It makes clear that this promised messianic seed of the woman that's promised to come to Abraham has now been promised to come through Isaac, through Jacob. It's gonna, he's going to come through Judah. He will subdue his enemies. It will be a great time of blessing. But think about this. Even though this promise was given to Judah, it wasn't fulfilled for centuries. Israel's earliest leaders were not from Judah. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon and the judges was from Manasseh. Samson from Dan, Samuel from Ephraim. Saul, the first king, was from the tribe of Benjamin. But after Saul was rejected, God chose a man from the tribe of Judah, David. Do you remember the opening line of the New Testament? 
Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Could have put in their son of Judah, but he didn't. When Luke writes his account, and the angel is speaking to Mary, and Gabriel is there and announcing to her that she has been chosen by God to give birth to Messiah, he uses these words, Luke 1.33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Tying these threads together, when John describes Jesus Christ in Revelation 5, he calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, our text has implications at the coming of Christ, at the return of Christ. They're describing this individual. And when he came the first time he came, John says, as the Lamb of God. John says when he comes again, he will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The story of redemption, it, it stretches from the first pages in Genesis to the last pages of the book of Revelation. From the first to the last. You see, this is the greatest story ever told. Ever. So with Jesus as this figure that's being looked at through, through the descendants of Judah, how do we take that truth and apply it to our lives? There are a lot of ways we could do that, but not do it accurately. We've got to do it accurately. So I'm going to ask two difficult questions of our text. And I think these two questions help us understand the purpose behind Genesis 49. Because as these sons gathered around the deathbed of their father, what were they supposed to learn? And then the next question deals with, all right, when was this written? Written by Moses, most likely as the people were camped, ready to enter into the land of Canaan. What are they supposed to learn? Why so much here? What are they supposed to learn? And what was the application they were supposed to make? So let's put this into its original setting. Question number one then is this. What was the purpose of these prophecies for these men? What did this mean to them, these sons of Jacob? What were they supposed to gain from listening to these blessings that their father said and, 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 and spoke as he was dying? Because the reality is most of them died before any of these promises were fulfilled. Judah's predicted to become the leader. Genesis 50, who, who's, who are they bound down to? Joseph. Joseph's the preeminent figure. In his lifetime, Judah and his brothers continue to bow before Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 18. So why did Jacob say this to his sons? They didn't see this fulfilled. They all died where? They died in Egypt. So what's going on here? I think they were supposed to learn two things as they heard this around the deathbed of Jacob. Two things I think we should learn as well. The first thing they needed to learn was raise up your eyes. When life is tough, raise up your eyes and see the big picture God's painting. As life gets tough, and it is tough, look up and see what God is doing if you can. Genesis 49, 28 says this, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them, 
when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. They were appropriate to each person, each of these sons. In chapter 49, verse 1, it says this, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. So these are predictions about what their life is going to be like, what their descendants' lives are going to be like, which implies something beyond their lifetime. So you draw some broad purposes from Jacob, what he said to his sons. These words show that Jacob's sons, they're going to build their families into tribes and their tribes into nations. Remember, they're just in Egypt. They're just this family that's there. And from this family and from the tribe of Judah is going to come a ruler that they will need to obey. He's raising their vision from being stuck in Egypt. A bunch of families just trying to survive to show them God's plan for history and how their families fit into that plan. So what are your circumstances? Where where does God want you to look this morning? Because God is doing something bigger than you can imagine. The future might look bleak, it might look difficult, it might look hard. But God is doing something. We know it. It's guaranteed. How do I know? Because Paul says this in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that's worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Get your eyes off of this and get them there. I think they should have learned that. Not a bad lesson for us. Second thing I think these sons should have learned is that character affects destiny. Character affects destiny. It was to show them that how they lived, the character of their lives, affected their own destiny, and it also affected the destiny of their descendants. Because part of this, if you read them all, Jacob, he knows his sons well, and he sees how they've, they've, they've reacted and what they've done in life. And he, each prophecy takes that into account, and each son's uniqueness. Now, we've only explored the blessing to Judah. Go home, read about Simeon and, and Reuben and Levi. You see, their blessings were linked to the sins that they had done and that they had not conquered in their life. Judah's name means praise. He predicts his brothers will praise him. Zebulun means dwelling. He's going to dwell by the sea, Jacob says. Issachar means wages. He's going to have a lot of labor in his life. Dan means judge. He's going to judge his people. Gad, it sounds like a Hebrew word for troop or raiders. And six of the Hebrews' words used in verse 19 are are puns on his name. Because you have to remember, for the Hebrew mindset, your name is significant. They were often used as prophecies or as hopes for your child. 
And here, in conjunction with Jacob's observations of each of his sons, the Holy Spirit enlightens him, gives him prophetic insight into the direction of the character of each son and what's going to happen to their descendants. So Jacob's sons should have learned that their character, the choices they made in their lives, is going to affect not only their own destiny, but their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. Now, that may sound a little fatalistic to you. Is the die set? Are you cast in that direction? But if you look at one example, Levi, you'll learn that a man and his family, when they actually do turn around to the Lord, what seems to be a curse can be turned into a blessing. That's the kind of God we serve. See, Jacob predicted that Levi would be scattered among Israel, which proved to be true, right? He didn't get an inheritance in the land. And yet, as he repents, his descendants, they are scattered as what? As priests. Channels for the truth of God to be disseminated all through the land. It was the same with each of these sons and each of these prophecies. While the overall plan of God is fixed, Each individual had the opportunity to turn to the Lord and to be a blessing to the nation. God's plan is irrevocable, but He gives us moral responsibility. We can choose to participate in it or just turn our back on it. So within these broad prophecies, Jacob is encouraging each of his sons, each of his sons, sons and sons, and down down you go, to follow God. Follow his way, lead, because your character will impact your destiny. So what's your character? How much are we bathing our lives in that which will bring blessing to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and set a course that their heart is after God? There's another question beyond the impact of these words just on the sons of Jacob. The second question is, what's the purpose of these prophecies for a fledgling nation as they're about to enter Canaan, okay? They're camped on the, on the east side of the Jordan River. They're ready to cross it, and you've got the, you know, the Jericho account and, the, and all of that that's about to begin, and, the, and Moses pens finally the, the Pentateuch. Why so much information? at the deathbed of Jacob for them. They're ready to go in, they're ready to conquer, but they are a stubborn people. They're often an unbelieving people. They're a selfish bunch who could have easily lost the land just fighting among themselves. They were a worldly-minded bunch who could easily get into the land, settle down, and just enjoy the material blessings. They're not in Egypt. They got their own land. They can do what they want. So I think many of the purposes in which these prophecies had for Jacob's sons, they applied to, to the people of Israel in the day in which they were written. Three lessons I think they should have learned. Three lessons, three more, that we should learn. I know your sermon notes say four. Hey, there's a day between printing and sermon. My prerogative, ixnay number four. So you're not going to get it. I don't even remember what it is. Don't ask. 
Lesson number one, I think, for them and for us, we must view our current circumstances in light of the plan of God. Israel is going to face some very difficult battles. If they're going to conquer Canaan, this is not going to be a piece of cake. And if they lost sight that this was the land that God gave to them through Abraham, he were to use that land to bless the world, they might just easily give up. Or they could have just blended in with the Canaanites. Let's just move in and be friends. And God's purpose would have been stymied. Or they get in there, let's fight with each other. You want that piece? I want that. I want that. That's the best. Come on. Real estate, you know, can, can, can get very emotional. Moses reporting on Jacob's prophecy showed Israel that each tribe had their own inheritance. And they needed to be content with the inheritance they were given. Don't fight over who gets what. Be content. Oh, we don't ever need to learn contentment, do we? Are we satisfied with where God has us today? Be content. These prophecies also illustrate an important lesson, I think, about how God works. Picture Jacob going from son to son to son. Reuben, he's deprived of his right of firstborn blessing because of his sin. Simeon and Levi, they don't get it either because they were violent and angry. And who's next? Number four, Judah. All the brothers, they know the skeletons in Judah's closet. He'd been involved in that horrible, embarrassing incident with Tamar. He was the one who actually suggested they sell Joseph into slavery. Well, at least we didn't kill him. He wanted to make a buck and salve their conscience at the same time. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are probably thinking, all right, Judah's going to get his now. We got what we deserved. He's going to get his. And Judah's probably thinking, oh, man, here it comes. But what happens? Jacob pronounces the greatest of blessings on all of Judah. See, only Joseph's blessings were of equal length, but it didn't rival the extent of the blessing and the prophecy to Judah. Why? Because the second thing I think they were supposed to learn as a people camped ready to go into the land was that God's choice is according to grace, not human merit. Because if God chose by merit, he would have chosen Esau over Jacob. He would have chosen Joseph over Judah. But God's choice is apart from what we do so that we cannot boast. Moses wanted his readers to see that if God chose to give them the best part of the land and somebody else the harder part, so be it. It's all by grace. If he chose to put a tribe in a less favorable part of the land, don't chafe against the purposes of God which Dan does and moves north eventually, that he should give them even any inheritance in this land is a testimony of the grace of God. So don't envy your brothers. 
See, it comes down to a question God asks of us. Do we trust him? I got all this going on in my life, but do I trust him? Do I believe him? Because God has shaped our lives and our ministries with the experiences that have come our way. But do we trust him in those? Do we use those for his glory? Because his choice is according to grace, not merit. And number three, when you turn to the Lord in repentance, God will bless you. Judah had repented of his sin. We saw it clearly, well, we would have seen it if we read all of the Genesis. In 44, 16, he says to Joseph, what can, we, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We're guilty. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. In other words, we did this. His eloquent, this heartfelt appeal to Joseph. He says, you know, take me, don't tend Benjamin. He repents of what he had done. And I think Moses wants his readers to know that no matter how great their sin had been, turn to the Lord in repentance. I'm going to bless you anyway, he says. Just repent. I mean, and look at Jacob himself. Jacob is not the hero of this account. The hero in this story, in these chapters, is God. God is the one who never gave up on Jacob. God is the one who never strayed from his original purpose to bless through Judah no matter what. Jacob didn't make it easy. Judah didn't make it easy. But God didn't give up on them. He looked at Jacob the way he looks at most of us. Well, there's a lifelong project. Let's keep it going. At any point along the way, God have said, could have said, forget it. It's hopeless. But he never did. And at the end, he's on his deathbed. Jacob emerges with a triumphant faith in God. God's going to do all of this in your lives, my sons. In later generations, biblical writers are going to use a very specific phrase, which you know very well, when they want to describe the fact that God keeps his promises. Who is he? He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Think about that. He's never called the God of Joseph, though Joseph was much more faithful and rose to much more prominence than Jacob. He's never called the God of Daniel, though Daniel had great courage. He's never called the God of Moses, who was an amazing leader. One writer said, this is the crowning proof of divine mercy, that God would associate himself with someone called Jacob. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to walk some straight and narrow line. You can be yourself, and God will gladly associate himself with you. If you'll just believe in him. Who is the God of Jacob? He's the God of abounding grace, of wisdom beyond human 
ability. He is a God who is always there for us in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of our fears. The God of Jacob is our God too. The same God who led Joseph to say these things is the God who leads us. Do you know that God? Because he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna wrap this up by returning our gaze to the one about whom Jacob speaks. Referenced in Revelation, let's provide a little more context. Revelation 5 verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, the inheritance of the universe, with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break these seals and open the scroll? Here's the inheritance of it all, but they can't open it to read what it, what it says. Verse 3, but no one in heaven on earth, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's where this is all headed. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. C.S. Lewis understood the significance of that short statement. When he wanted to create his hero figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he created who? He created Aslan, the lion. And it wasn't just any line, the king of the beasts, the ruler of Narnia. And he's mostly unseen because he's always on the move. But he is powerful and yet kind, gentle, but fierce. He is to be feared and revered and honored and trusted. And in one of the most famous bits of conversation in the whole series, I'm quoting Ken who quotes C.S. Lewis. I see you there, Ken. Lucy asks the beavers, is he safe? Well, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, Mrs. Beaver replies, they're either braver than most or just silly. So is he safe? Asks Lucy. To which Mr. Beaver replies, of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The whole point of the image out of, out of Genesis is that Jesus is good and that changes everything. Satan goes about like a roaring lion, but he's not good. He came from the tribe of Judah just as Jacob had predicted. In his first coming, he arrives as a helpless baby in a manger, but soon he's confounding his teachers. He's baffling his parents. He enraged the power brokers of his day. He called the hypocrites to account. He heals the sick and he casts out the demons. He calmed the storm. He does stuff only God can do. And he cures the blinds and he even raised the dead. 
And as he's dying, he utters forgiveness to the guy next to him. The lamb who died becomes the lamb, I mean the lion of God. The lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb who is a lion. The compassionate savior who will one day rule the world. And you see, that is what Christmas is all about. If you look at the light before Christmas. Let's pray. Father, this season as we celebrate, as we dig into some of these passages which cause us just to scratch our heads sometimes. But you prepared for this day with some glimpses, some small lights that will eventually burn bright that we might see that the one we worship The one we adore is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Let us worship him this season. Let us worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.